0: Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Canadian Story. We're here with Franco, one of the great uh, warriors for freedom and democracy, and most importantly, lower taxes. So, literally, the guy who's trying to keep more money in your pocket. Franco, welcome to the show. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the listeners who may not know who you are?
1: Well, David, it's great to chat again. And Zach, it's good to uh, e meet you. Uh, so, I'm the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We are a nonpartisan Grassroots organization that's been scrapping for lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government for more than thirty years now. So it's pretty cool to be a part of this organization. I started uh, with the CTF as the Alberta director and spokesperson, and then they shipped me off to uh, to Ottawa. And you know, I'm in the business of government waste, and unfortunately, that business is booming here in the nation's capital.
0: And but for those who don't understand what he meant by that, he means he's in the government of exposing, or he's in the business of exposing government. (laughs) The Canadian (laughs) Taxpayers Federation is all about shining light on government and exposing government corruption. It's been doing a great job on that for a very long time. Some of Canadians' best champions, uh, even for a long time, Jason Kenney himself came from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So uh, it's a noble tradition. It's got a lot of great people who've held your role. Uh, Throughout time, what what right now is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation paying the most attention to what's going on?
1: Well, first, hey, great clarification there. That's fantastic. Yeah, we expose government waste. We never have never will take a cent from the government. Now, let me tell you what's really boiling my blood lately. It's this tale of two pandemics. Right Over the last two years, we've seen revolving government lockdowns, and really, we've seen this tale of two downturns, where you had one full of private sector pain. If you own a business, if you work for a business, you've taken it on the chin, pay cuts, job losses, people maybe losing their business for good. On the other side of the equation, you have, well, it wasn't a downturn. You had full, it was full of economic gain from so many bureaucrats, so many politicians. Uh, David, one thing that I always want to stress is while you may have been struggling, while your family may have been struggling, your supposed representative in Ottawa, your member of parliament has been busy giving themselves not one, not two, but three pay raises since COVID-19 touched down. So a backbencher. Along with collecting dust in the House of Commons, they're also collecting an extra $10,000 compared to their pre-COVID salary. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he's raking in an extra $20,000, yeah, compared to his uh, pre-COVID-19 salary. So this is really the big issue, I think, uh, for taxpayers across Canada.
0: Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I love what I love about the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, if I'm going to be honest, is it boils it down to explainable details. For people who understand, because even I, when I hear millions and billions, I'm kind of like, well, those are just, you know, airy fairy numbers. But like you just said, while some of my friends are committing suicide because their businesses have gone away, right? And we're watching absolute family collapse and travesty beyond comprehension, sorrow beyond comprehension. The government bureaucrats are sitting at home on their computers administering a tyrannical state on the unvaccinated it's it's wild it's wild so i don't want to go into vaccines but i want to go into what were the what was the economic damage that the canadian taxpayers federation has tracked for businesses during this time
1: well there's a huge amount of damage uh, it was it's a carnage i mean everyone uh everyone in their dog who's not behind the golden gates of government has felt the carnage whether it's you whether it's your spouse your partner whether it's a family member but again, what's so unfair is that you have people who've taken it on the chin. You have the taxpayers that have taken it on the chin. And if I can, you have the tax consumers, right? Because it's the makers <laughs> yes. versus the takers. This is good.
0: This is good. I like it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, they I mean, look, it's it's not only have here's OK, let's break it down. Um, they haven't been willing to shoulder the burden at all. And the problem with this is that now the private sector who struggled so much over the last two years is facing a higher tax burden because the government has not only increased the number of bureaucrats on its payroll, but has been handing out pay raises and bonuses. So let's start from a simple point. We already talked about MPs giving themselves bigger pay. Well, it's kind of tough for a member of Parliament to then go to the bureaucracy and ask them to share in the tough times when the MPs themselves aren't willing to share in the tough times. And of course, surprise, surprise, there is more than 300,000 federal government employees that received at least one pay raise during the pandemic, not a single federal government employee received a pay cut. In fact, the federal government has no records of its employees ever receiving a pay cut. So that's that's and, and look, I mean, we can get into more of the nitty gritty, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. More than 300,000 federal government employees uh, taken a pay cut or taken a pay raise during the pandemic and lockdowns and not a single one taking a cut.
0: The tale of two pandemics. I love this. I want to get into it more. Okay. So another part of the tale of two pandemics is you have people who are being told that they cannot do business. Meanwhile, you're having people who are not even going to work getting pay raises. Now, we can't even get passports. We don't have airports to work. The, the things that the federal yep. government's supposed to do for us.
1: I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Let me just jump on. Let me just let me just get right into this because you're you're setting this up perfectly. Look, taxpayers are paying more for poor performance. Now, uh, this is in rocket science, and I shouldn't have to say this out loud with my mouth, but bonuses and pay raises are for when you do a good job. But these government employees, these crown corporations, are not doing a good job. The National Post ran a story uncovered that there was over $100 million in bonuses for these department bureaucrats, wait for it, when they couldn't even meet 50% of their own objectives. So in the private sector, if you can't meet 50% of your own performance targets, you get shown the door. You don't get shown a big fat bonus check, okay? And that's just department bureaucrats. Let's look outside of the departments because the federal government is like this big octopus with its tentacles everywhere. So let's talk about these crown corporations, okay? The Bank of Canada has absolutely failed to do its one job, which is to keep inflation low and around 2%. Well, if you've tried to buy ground beef at the grocery store, if you attempted to fuel up your car with gasoline, you know that the Bank of Canada failed to do that job. Yet the Bank of Canada turned around and gave its employees $45 million in bonuses and pay raises in 2020 and 2021. Now, here is one of the most frustrating parts of that story. You have the Bank of Canada's own deputy governor admitting that they failed their own targets, no duh, and that the Bank of Canada should be held accountable. Well, isn't that just a funny way to hold your organization accountable by turning around and handing out bonuses and pay raises to the employees?
0: It goes down to something even more basic than we can imagine. You will get the behavior you incentivize. If you incentivize failure, you will get failure. And right now, we're literally, uh, that Franco just told us, folks, we're literally incentivizing failure.
1: Oh, I've got more. We're just, this is literally just the tip. Let's go. This is going
0: to be the riff of the century. Go, (laughs) go.
1: (laughs) This is literally just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Let's talk about another crown corporation that is uh, no stranger to the taxpayer cookie jar. And that's the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Now your listeners are probably like, what is the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation? Probably never heard of it. Well, this is a crown corporation whose number one objective, according to its own website, is housing affordability for all. Well, in 2020 and 2021, Canadians have been struggling to afford a home. So what does the Crown, <laughs> <laughs> so, so what does the Crown Corporation uh, who's tasked with housing affordability do? Well, naturally it turns around and hands out $60 million in bonuses and pay raises to their employees, okay? Uh, now that sounds bad enough, but listen to this. They also took 250,000 smackers, which is taxpayers' money, And they handed it out to an organization called Generation Squeeze uh, to essentially write a report recommending a home equity tax. It gets worse. (laughs) This whole report was supposed to be looking at how to reduce housing prices. And this organization somehow thinks that the way to reduce housing prices is to put in another tax. Well, this must be the first tax in all of humankind that somehow reduces prices. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) But of
0: course, of course,
1: course that's not how taxes work. I mean, if you've ever gone to a grocery store ever in your life, you know that a GST increases costs. If you've ever gone to a gas station in the last few years, of course, you know, the carbon tax increases costs. So this report funded by taxpayers, $250,000 is really just a head scratcher. It's really just such a waste of money Uh, to add insult to injury. The CMHC somehow thought it was another it was a good idea to give this organization another $200,000 on top of that to to do to better understand the relevance of the report. So nearly half a million dollars from the taxpayer uh, funneled to this organization, complete waste of time. And there you have it, folks, ladies and gentlemen, the CMHC.
2: Huh. All of a uh, sudden, it makes so much more sense why I pay as many taxes as I do. There's so many raises I need to give people. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Won't somebody, somebody just think of the struggling central of, banker, Oh, hey?
2: <laughs>
0: those struggling central bankers, indeed. Okay, so I want to go into something that blows my mind. It's how much money was spent on COVID. We're talking how much waste was there? Can you expose some of the waste for us? I would love to hear about it.
1: Yeah, oh, so the last, um, the last number that I saw was a little bit over $500 billion dollars that the federal government spent on lockdown subsidies, essentially. And now we wrote an article. I wrote I authored an article that was in the Post. Now, it was was a while ago, but we essentially made the argument that um, there came a time where we just had to call a spade a spade. And with all of these federal government lockdown subsidies, I mean, what they're essentially doing was subsidizing provincial lockdowns right? Because you have essentially, now I know there was federal restrictions as well, especially with airports and things of that nature. But by and large, the lockdowns that impacted your day-to-day life was from the provincial government. But you had the federal government that was providing the bulk of the funding for these different types of programs, right? The wage subsidy, the CERB, uh, things of that nature. So you had this weird policy gap where you had the provincial government making the decision on the vast majority of the lockdowns, but you had the federal government footing the bill. So you essentially had the provincial government making a decision, but not bearing the full cost of its decisions. So you you had this subsidization of provincial government lockdowns. Now we wrote a whole article on that talking about this perverse incentive and then just eventually said, hey, look, if these provincial governments want to do lockdowns, if they think it's in the best interest of their citizens, let them pay for it. Let their own taxpayers pay for the decisions that they're making.
0: I like that. I really like that.
2: So what you're saying is the federal government, by footing the bill for the lockdown measures, they incentivized the provincial governments to impose
1: the lockdown measures. Because they reduced the cost of making those lockdown decisions. Right. Right. Uh, Especially later in the game. Uh, especially later in the game, it was like, okay, well, look, um, I think we all understand that different uh, provinces, different jurisdictions are, have different, uh, different factors to consider. I mean, look, you even have population differences across different provinces, right? So we know that there's differences that each province is facing and and whatever. Well, let the province make the decision based on whatever they think their people want or whatever they think their people need. Obviously, I mean, just look at different provinces in terms of how uh, densely populated a province may be. I mean, I know that this was an issue in Alberta, right? Where you had Alberta MLA saying, well, why are these, why are certain locations being um, faced with the same type of restrictions as the big cities? Like this was a big issue back in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one. I remember some MLA speaking out about it. uh Drew Barnes, for example, comes to mind making this exact same point. Well, you can you can expand this discussion. Uh, at a nat- national level as well. And there came a point, especially further into these lockdowns, where we said, well, hold on a second. You have the federal government subsidizing provincial government decision-making because it's the provincial government that is saying when to lock down and what to lock down, but it's the federal government footing the bulk of the costs for these decisions.
2: Right, very interesting. What do you think the, the reasoning in the federal, federal government was
1: to pick up all of that expense? Why did they decide to do it, hmm. do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I'm not really in the game of speculating. I guess they would have uh, that'd be a great, a great question for for a minister, I, I suppose. But um, I mean, all decisions from a politician have political aspects involved, right?
2: Right. Okay. Mine, well, how about this
1: then? How about this? I'm under the
2: impression that our good old friend Mister Trudeau has created more debt for the country of Canada than every other prime minister nearly in the history of the country combined
1: after mm-hmm. adjusting for inflation. Is that correct? Uh, okay, so in nominal dollars, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has nearly doubled the debt. Mm-hmm. Has nearly doubled the debt. Now, let me let me just bring in, let me just uh, jump off that because, okay, so we've seen huge deficits in Canada for a long time. Even before the pandemic in 2018, you had the federal government spending all-time highs, even adjusted for inflation and population growth. That means that in 2018, the Trudeau government spent more money than the federal government did during any single year during World War II, okay? So we've seen huge deficits in Canada for a long time. Now, here's what was different during the pandemic than previous years. We saw the central bank, we saw the printing press on overdrive during the pandemic. The central bank creates new dollars out of thin air we call it the printing press, but really it's with a click of the keypad. It creates these new dollars out of thin air by buying financial assets such as Government of Canada debt, Government of Canada bonds. Well, the central bank printed about $300 billion, more than $300 billion during the pandemic. At the height of the pandemic, it was about a three 300% growth in the Bank of Canada's assets, which is significantly more uh, growth than what you saw in the recession of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 0809 recession. Actually, it's even bigger than the beginning of the 2008 recession all the way up to the beginning of the pandemic. So you saw this huge, huge amount of money creation from the central bank. And the more dollars that the central bank prints, the less that your dollars in your banking account or your savings account or your retirement account will buy. Okay. now, what was the central bank essentially purchasing? Government of Canada bonds, whether that was new uh, debt or old debt, whether that was in the primary market directly from the Treasury or whether it was from a, a middleman like a bank. Regardless, it was printing new dollars out of thin air, devaluing your money by purchasing government of Canada debt. That's the inflation tax. Now, it's even worse because of the supply side. Because of two years of revolving government lockdowns, output is less. Because the government was paying people to stay home, paying people not to work, you had less people working. So you essentially had the federal government and a central bank create the perfect storm for inflation, which is too many dollars chasing too few goods.
2: Yeah, do do you think they knew that they were doing that when they, I guess you don't speculate, but do you think you knew, they knew what they were doing when they were doing it? Or was it purely out of um, concern for the
1: situation that we were in? Well, it just depends on what you mean by, did they know what they were doing? Did they know that they were printing new dollars out of thin air, buying these bonds? Of course they did. Yeah, of course. Of course they knew. Uh, did they know that that would lead to the inflation, the nearly four decades high inflation that we're seeing today? I don't think so. I mean, at least not um, at least not from the public records. In fact, uh, I'm not sure Macklem has got anything right. Uh, during the pandemic, right, the governor of the Bank of Canada, the head of the Bank of Canada, he said that we've got some things wrong. Well, what have they gotten right? I mean, at in a finance committee appearance back in 2020, he, he said that inflation would remain low. Obviously, they're wrong. Um, he said that interest rates would remain around 0.25%. Obviously, today, another big rate hike, so he was wrong there. So, no, I don't think they predicted what would happen. I, I really don't. They knew they are creating money. I don't think they knew the effect of it.
0: I want to go on on that. People don't understand what rate hike, rate hikes mean. So, can you explain what a rate hike is, what it means for the economy, what it's going to do to housing? You know, just walk through what a rate hike is and what it means.
1: Yeah. And hey, sorry if I'm getting a little bit too no, wonky no, with you guys great, here.
0: This is very good. I just want to make sure that it, our listeners get like a full understanding, based, get a little bit of a foundation on a few things. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I, let's just stay super high level with this. There's no point in getting into too much of the details, but essentially the Bank of Canada has a benchmark policy rate. Um, when it raises rates or lowers rates, uh, it influences the rates that you pay on your mortgage, On any other type of interest rate that you might see. Now, it doesn't directly influence it, but it kind of does. So, when the Bank of Canada today announces its policy interest rate is going up, uh, you can essentially expect to see different interest rates throughout the economy go up as well. Now, what does that mean? Um, It means a few things. For the consumer, it means, well, interest rates that you're going to have to pay in the housing market or whatever type of loan you're going to take out are probably going to get higher, right? Um, Now, for government, It means that it's going to balloon the deficit because because obviously the government has to pay interest on its $1 trillion debt. And the higher that these interest rates go, the higher that the borrowing costs are, the more that the government has to pay every single year on its debt servicing costs, its interest costs. So for the government, just like for your normal household, these interest rate hikes are going to mean higher costs. Now, I think that the one of the big issues, obviously, we've seen our housing prices. Now, interest rate hikes are supposed to uh, mitigate housing price increases. But of course, for a person who has to renew their interest rate, it might just mean a lot of pain as well.
0: Can you So I'll, I'll explain what I think that means. and You can tell me if you think that's right. But the way I understand it is if you're renewing your mortgage, right, and you have your mortgage at 2.5% locked in, and now you're renewing it. Now it's a five. You still you have to pay two point five percent more interest every year. Now let's say you have a million dollar home. Suddenly your interest has gone up twenty five thousand dollars a year, just the interest on your loan, nothing else.
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially, that's that's the issue that many people are going to face, and especially if uh, for an economy that has racked up a ton of debt, not just government debt, which is huge, right? Dou- Trudeau doubles the national debt. In his short time in office, essentially, but um for consumers too, for people who have households, for businesses that have taken on debt. I mean, this is going to impact them as well.
0: Absolutely. And, and that's that's the horrible thing about this modern mon, or modern monetary theory. Do you want to explain what that is so people kind of understand what modern monetary theory is? Because that's kind of what led has led us here and what Zach was referencing, I think, right?
1: Well, you know, the funny thing about modern monetary theory is that it's not so modern. Um, I was reading, you might have heard of the professor, an economics professor called Ludwig von Mises. Well, he has a famous treatise on money called The Theory of Money and Credit. I believe it. Ooh, from like 1912 was, I think, the first edition of it. Man, I'm going to be so upset if I got the name wrong. Uh, (laughs) We forgive you. We forgive you. Well, I'm not going to forgive myself, but eventually (laughs) he's kind of taking shots at like People who think that you could just run the printing press or clip coins or whatever, expand the money supply to fund government. So this isn't really a new phenomenon. Uh, people have been talking about uh, money debasement to fund government for a very long time. And and one of the arguments that um, Professor Mises made was that inflation, devaluing people's money to fund government activities, is the most undemocratic form of taxation, and he goes through example after example, usually talking about wars where um, the state would essentially fund itself, fund the activities that it didn't think taxpayers would be willing to pay for by devaluing people's currencies. So look, modern monetary theory really isn't modern. The idea that the government uh, can try to devalue people's money to fund its services, like that's not really modern at all. Now, there's two problems with this. Now, number one, Is this, is there's no free lunch when it comes to government spending. So every time the government spends money, it either has to raise taxes today, raise taxes tomorrow with interest, borrowing, or it has to devalue people's money through the inflation tax, the printing press. There's no way to get around this. So if you don't want to use taxation to fund government revenue, well, then you have to use the, or government spending, then you have to use the inflation tax. There's no way around it. There is no free lunch. So regardless, it's taxpayers are going to have to foot the bill. Okay, so that's number one. The more the government prints to fund itself, the less that your dollars can buy. It's the inflation that we're feeling today. But number two, now, here's another issue that people don't talk about with MMT, but it's the same issue with taxation. It's essentially, you're just spreading resources from the taxpayer to the tax consumer, to the special interest groups, the bureaucrats, the politicians, the people who are getting corporate welfare that are closest to the government. MMT doesn't change that. MMT, just like taxation, has a fundamental problem of shifting resources from the makers to the takers.
0: Okay, let's go into this. Makers, takers, go for it. Uh, what, what, <laughs> because people, like, I'll go for it for a second. So, like, we have to understand that money is also not a thing right? Money is simply a measure of value, a store of value, or a means of exchange, right? So what is it actually? It's just a thing that talks about value. And what is value? Value is human concentrated attention into a thing to create something, whether that's a book, whether that's energy, whether that's food, whether whatever it is, that's what money is, right? So Franco, why do governments? get confused and believe that they can create productivity or value out of nothing.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure they do get confused. You know, I'm also tired of pretending like all of this is like unintended consequences. I'm so sick and tired of it. Right. Like let's not pretend like these high gas prices aren't exactly what the Trudeau government wants. Right. They must be patting themselves on the back every time they pass a gas station. Hey, look, we did that. You know, like, this is the whole point. Like, so let me just give you the example of the carbon tax, uh, the carbon tax. The whole point of the carbon tax is to increase gasoline prices and to make it more expensive to heat your home with things like natural gas. That's the whole point. The government knows that it's increasing the price of the pump by 11 cents per liter. The government knows that by 2030, its carbon tax is inc- is going to increase the price of gasoline by nearly 40 cents per liter right? And and the government is also bringing in a second carbon tax through fuel regulations that kicks off next July. That's going to increase the price of gasoline by up to 13 cents per liter by 2030. The government knows this. It's in the government's own analysis. The government's own analysis also shows that guess who's going to be impacted the most by its second carbon tax? The people who are already living in energy poverty, the single mothers the uh, elderly who are living on fixed incomes this is all within the government's own analysis it knows what it's doing it's the whole point of it so I forget how we got on this conversation but no, essentially, oh yeah,
0: no this is great but I, I, I just, I'm just I'm just tired
1: of us pretending yeah, like these right, politicians right. and bureaucrats don't know what they're doing
0: you're right and and so if they do know okay so then this begs an even more important question if they do know what they're doing why? Why would they want to cause more human suffering?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Now you're getting me into the speculation game and I'm going to, don't worry, I'll get myself, (laughs) I'll get myself out of it. Uh, But look, I mean, it's, it's all about, I mean, politicians are going to politic. It's all about scoring political cheap or political points. It's about getting votes. It's about finding, um, finding some type of coalition that you think you can win with. Um, whether that's people, whether that's the green vote, this vote, that vote, I don't know. But another thing that we have to remember, too, and I forget where I read this, but it's essentially like, look, uh, people really care about the environment and should like everyone cares about the environment. Everyone wants a healthy environment uh, to pass on uh, to the, the kids, grandkids, whatever. But people really care about being able to put food on the table. And what we've seen poll after poll showing that people are so concerned about the cost of living. People are so concerned about uh, being able to afford the essentials that I think the whole political dynamic is about to change. Now, I'm not a pundit. I'm not someone who's going to (laughs) give any political advice. But look, I I think it's pretty hard to sell someone on a carbon tax when they can barely afford to fuel up their uh, car on the way to work. So I think we're in for some very interesting shifts. Um, uh, from our people. I mean, I hear this all the time from people, I'm sure you do as well, where people are really, really, really struggling and it's government taxes. It's this massive out-of-control spending, this money printing that is making this awful time much more difficult.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And, and yet there are some some bright lights in the darkness. And uh, while well, my listeners may be surprised to hear it, one of them was actually Jason Kenney's economic leadership in Alberta. Do you want to speak a little bit about this $13 billion budget that was just announced because I think, I think that's quite an achievement and I believe in giving credit where credit is due. So I want to hear your analysis of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, we just saw a huge, uh, a huge surplus from premier Jason Kenney. And to your point, it is important to give credit where credit's due And the Alberta government just showed every other government in Canada exactly what to do with the budget surplus, exactly what to do, okay? They're providing tax relief, they're using some of that money to pay down the debt, and they're also putting some money away into the Heritage Trust Fund. So tax relief, (laughs) debt reduction, saving, check, check, check. Um, Look, I am so happy to hear that Premier Kenny is scrapping his sneaky backdoor income tax hike known as bracket creep. I was I was the Alberta director for Kenny's first budget in 2019. And before that budget, he promised that he would balance the books without raising taxes while I was in the budget lockup, you know, going through all the budget documents before it was released to the public. And surprise, surprise, we found that Kenny stopped the indexation of the tax system. That's called bracket creep. Let me break it down for you. So there is a very fundamental principle of taxation that income tax brackets should move every single year with inflation. Because if they don't, that means that you could be bumped into a higher tax bracket, even though you can't actually afford to buy more things. Now you might be thinking, well, hold on Franco, that only impacts the really high income earners, right? At the top of the bracket. Well, that's not the case because it also affects your personal basic amount, the tax-free portion of your income, if it doesn't move with inflation every year, it gets eroded year after year after year. So essentially what Mr. Kenny did in 2019 is that he brought in a very sneaky form of taxation known as bracket creep that uses inflation to increase the government's coffers. Now, look, if you think that Albertans aren't paying enough income taxes, I disagree with you but at least have the spine to be upfront with it and try to raise the rates. The Kenny government didn't do that. They tried to increase taxation so covertly through bracket creep. So we were upset about that. We were leading the charge against that, but it is, you know, fast forward to today. It is very good to see Kenny uh, scrap that income tax hike before he steps down as premier.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I couldn't agree more. I think, The thing that Alberta needs to do with every future surplus, if possible, is exactly what's being done right now, which is some to savings, some to debt reduction, and some to tax reduction all the time. Just keep, as we need to become the freest place possible. Like, we should be Norway. As Michael Binion, a friend of both of ours, often says, he says, uh, you know, we have less people and more oil than Norway. Why are we poorer than them? A good and true
1: to entrepreneurship add. too uh look, look here's one thing I always push back on because I just think you're so wrong not you guys but but you guys are right about uh, about a lot of stuff I, I'm sure uh but when I ever I hear well look it's Alberta Alberta just got lucky you just stumbled you just happened to live in in this jurisdiction that has all this oil and gas okay well hold on a second uh that's not exactly how it works I mean you could think of countless other countries countless other jurisdictions that have that are resource rich but are actually quite poor, right? Because guess what? Government policy, culture, also, it matters. Low taxes matter. Small government matters. Less red tape, less onerous regulations matter. Not having a federal government that treats you as a cash cow matters, right? So it's not just that Albertans happen to have been born in a place that has abundant resource wealth, which, I mean, all Albertans, I mean, very fortunate, of course, but it's the policies, it's the institutions, and it's the culture that allowed Albertans to develop those resources.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, the entrepreneurial spirit. We were just talking to uh, Lindsay Wilson of Alberta Proud uh, oh, right on. earlier today, and we we're having that discussion about Alberta. That'd be an interesting question that I have for you is you served uh, as a taxpayer rep in Alberta, and now you're the federal guy. Talk a little bit about the differences between those two roles and, and what, what you've noticed. I mean. I think from your perspective, it's a lot, there's a lot more bad in Ottawa, right? From a taxpayer's perspective, there's so much waste there, but there's waste in Alberta too. But what do you see as the major cultural differences in the the kind of waste, let's say?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, first, uh, you know, my heart's still in Alberta. I mean, my family's in Lethbridge, so Uh, I, I, my heart's still in Alberta, love Alberta. Uh, the, the toughest part about leaving, uh, the role in Alberta, besides just the family aspect was I just love the politics in Alberta. It's rough and tumble. It's feisty. Um, I mean, the opposition's always up in the grill of the government. It's a lot of fun, man. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, now what are the differences? Well, here, let's talk about the similarities. Uh, maybe it's a little bit different now, but when I first started out, I mean, Alberta was a big spender. I remember having Quebec politicians calling out the Alberta government for being big spenders. That's crazy, right? It's, it's crazy when you, Quebec's calling you out, you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, like, that was wild.
1: Yeah, the Blue Ribbon Panel on Alberta's finances said that the Alberta government had a $10 billion spending problem. That if they brought spending in line with comparable provinces, they would save $10 billion every single year. So there was actually some similarities between the big spending Alberta government and this massive spending uh, federal government. So there definitely are some similarities. I mean, some of the differences are so are so uh, striking. I mean, look, Alberta should be the pace car for the rest of Canada when it comes to small government and freedom. I mean, certainly we have seen some uh, good stuff on the taxpayer side from Kenny, right? Uh, they cut the fuel tax during inflation. They cut business taxes, um scrap the provincial carbon tax fighting with Ottawa over its carbon tax, over its Bill C69, the No More Pipelines law. Um, we haven't seen that in Ottawa. Like, at least under this Trudeau government, there really hasn't been much good news for taxpayers. I mean, there just there just really hasn't. Now we're seeing some interesting proposals out of the out of this conservative party leadership race, which is nearing completion. Um for some very interesting stuff, but we we really haven't gotten much good news from this federal government.
0: No. Okay, I want to talk about the leadership because that's everyone everyone's talking about right now. Sure. And finally, after so long, like I grew up in uh, in the Stephen Harper era of conservatism. Uh, that was kind of where I cut my teeth, and um, and back then economics was all people cared about. That was that was what we were working on, and that was that was what was important, and that was a carryover to be fair from the Kretchen martin years because they cared a lot about economics it was really 20 years of good canadian fiscal policy getting better and better now we just seem to be getting worse and worse right like it's 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 catastrophic out there there's the debt levels the the taxation levels it's 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 stifling the regulations are through the roof On uh, we have this taxation by inflation thing yep. going on what, what's your advice to the next leader of the Conservative Party of, of how to, whoever they may be, even though I think we all know who it's going to be, what's your
1: advice to them? Well, I think it address a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. Let's get back to the economy. Let's get back to like not making it harder for Canadians to put food on the table, not making it harder for the people who want to work to work. Like It's, it's pretty basic stuff. I mean… Let me just jump back because you said things are getting worse and worse. Let's let's jump back to the last federal election. Uh, It was like a race on who could spend more. (laughs) You know what I mean? Who had a bigger (laughs) credit card bill? Like so true, so true. Fair, fair. I I remember O'Toole. He wanted to spend fifty billion dollars more than the last Liberal government budget. Like uh, the Liberals wanted to spend seventy-eight billion dollars more. The NDP, they're not even in like planet earth. They're not even we're not even the same reality. Like honestly, their last election platform was from another dimension, man. They wanted to spend like 200 billion dollars more than the last liberal government budget. It's like it's like how are you going to pay for that? I don't know, man, with bananas. Like it just wasn't <laughs> it just wasn't based in even in reality. Um so that was pretty crazy. I mean, I will say though at least like who knows, right? With leaderships. Uh, I mean, O'Toole, what did he run on the true blue? And then he yeah. essentially flip-flopped on everything under the sun. Yeah. So well, you know,
0: I I may have really pushed a policy called defund the CBC that was pretty watered down by election day, let me tell you. Exactly.
1: Exactly, right? So that's that's the big concern coming out of this leadership race because a lot of the conservative uh leadership hopefuls i mean they've been pushing some really good policies uh for example i mean one was Ev's pay-as-you-go law where he's proposing that for every dollar that the government wants to spend they also have to find a dollar in savings that's right. a, that's a great law and over time that reduces the size of government now we want him to go much further than that and 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 we have gone him on record uh, on some good commitments but the big thing is, is well, will will they keep their promises after the leadership race, or are we going to get uh, an O'Toole 2.0? I think that's the big question, right?
0: Well, actually, I don't ask that question anymore. At the Take Back Alberta meetings uh, that I run, I, I say very clearly: if they don't, we'll just do to them what we did to Kenny and O'Toole. Like, there's a there's a new sheriff in town, and it's called the people, and they're not really interested it. in they're not really interested in politicians changing their mind. Like you said, I tell the people, like, let's not give them the option, right? We just make it very clear that if you do not do what you say you're going to do, you're gone. And we don't yeah, care if that means the other team loses. And then they don't have any choice, really. Yeah. We, we, you got to incentivize politicians like dogs, right? Sticks and, and meat. Like, you give them some good the votes as the meat, but you have to be like, oh, but also the sword of Democles is hanging over your head.
1: But that right. also means, but that also like, but look, but I, I love it. I completely agree. New, new, new share and in town is the people love it. Uh, but that also provides an, or that also gives an onus and responsibility to all the people who are listening to this conversation right now. And, and all the people that go to your town halls or all the people who come to our events, all of our supporters, look, there is no, there is no silver bullet. What it takes is eternal vigilance, you know, not to sound so, uh, So full of ourselves, but look, the only way that we're actually going to get all these politicians uh, doing the things that they should do is by paying attention. I do think that a large part of what politicians try to do is they try to keep everything in the back rooms, right? They don't want to be completely transparent with the people. They want to be able to pass through um certain types of legislation or spending that that helps their interest group their interest buddy over here uh to the detriment of the dispersed taxpayers so i totally agree with what you say but that necessarily means that the onus is then on everyday people uh to follow what's going on and to actually take action not just you know tweeting and sharing stuff on on social media is important but you have to show up uh, you have to mobilize. You have to email, send phone calls. You have to obviously exercise your, your democratic right. All things of that nature. Well, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it's not going to more.
2: It's not going to come to you unless you do the work, just like anything else. Good. If you want, if you want a, a shrinking government in a country that can pay its bills, you're going to have to be vigilant as a citizen to make sure that the politicians do that. Right. Um, I'm curious about healthcare. Do you have any metrics
1: on what we spend federally on healthcare? Oh, I don't have that uh off the top of my head. I'm I'm sorry about that. But look, I think it's it's way past time uh to have a, an adult conversation about healthcare. Right? Let's let's set aside this boogeyman uh about private de- private care. I mean, first of all, we have private we have some forms of private care in in, in Canada. Uh second of all, what what every other country <laughs> of our in- industrialized peers or at least the vast majority of our industrialized peers have uh, forms of private healthcare in their model. OK, so we, we have to have this adult conversation. The federal government has to allow the provinces who want to um, allow businesses to help out- offload some of these cost pressures to do so. I mean, look, what was that? St- what, what is the what is the saying? Hel- uh, hallway healthcare right? Yeah, yeah, where, where, exactly. where hospitals are over capacity. It's crazy. I was doing some research during the pandemic and during lockdowns, and there was hospitals in Canada that were over 100% capacity before the pandemic. And I was like, how, do you, how are you over 100% capacity? Of course, that's the hallway healthcare. Well, no wonder if something comes around and puts some added stress onto an institution that is already uh, full of stress, that things are going to go bad. Right. Mm-hmm. So the only way for us to get past what just happened over the last two years, two plus years, is for us to actually allow businesses, entrepreneurs, the private sector to come in and really help offload some of these huge costs, these huge pressures that are on the government health care system. But guess what? That means we're going to have to have some politicians, some in the spine to go after the union bosses. Because it's the government union bosses that are really driving this thing. I remember in Alberta, the Kenny government was actually trying to put in some sensible change. What was it like? Uh, not have the uh, unionized employees putting Tide in the, in the washer and dryer, or not obviously not the dryer, or, or or we don't need government employees serving coffee. And what did the union bosses do? They They lit their hair on fire. So it's actually going to take some politicians with the spine and, and let's be honest, it's going to take some tough work for those politicians uh, to really make change and allow businesses to help uh, offload some of these costs and pressure.
2: Yeah, we, we in Canada have made socialized medicine a sacred cow. Um, but I, and the reason I asked for the metric is because I also don't have it in front of me, but I know that we spend uh, an obscene amount of money on healthcare. And if pre-pandemic, we already have hospitals at over 100 capacity and we're in a situation where wait times for surgeries are astronomically long are we getting what we're paying for because we're all paying for it
1: right Uh, yeah Um, so i was just i was just on my phone pulling Hmm. up this article i wrote so uh we came out very hard against the vax tax that uh francois legault in quebec was proposing we said no way no way Hmm. screw that like this is like first of all it's so punitive, right? Just, just so punitive. But second of all, even if you are vaccinated, um, like think about just how bad of a precedent this sets, right? What's the next thing that these busybody bureaucrats are wanna, gonna gonna wanna come after you over? So, if you wanna find the statistics to this, um, to what I'm about to say, just check out all Canadians need to unite against the Vax Tax. Uh, I was one of the authors on it. So some of these, so some of these statistics are absolutely crazy. So, um. The provinces spent about $400 billion on healthcare since the beginning of 2020. Uh, The feds spent more than $500 billion on COVID-19. So combining those two over about a two-year period, you're close to a trillion dollars in healthcare, in in some form of healthcare or COVID-19 spending, right? So you have these healthcare bureaucrats, uh, the provincial healthcare bureaucrats at the top who are talking about how it's necessary to have these lockdowns and restrictions to protect healthcare capacity? Okay, but in two years, uh, we spend what hundreds of billions of dollars. What did you do to actually expand healthcare capacity to actually innovate um, so that we're not just relying on an overburdened government healthcare system? Right like that's the question. A
0: trillion dollars. Nearly yeah, a where, trillion
1: dollars again. Of, the province has spent about 400 billion on healthcare since the beginning of 2020. That's according to their own budgets and the fed spent more than 500 billion responding to covid. So that's right. nearly I mean, a hospital
0: in every town in this country for a trillion dollars. And a staff new hospital. It.
1: Yeah, it's
2: it's obscene. It's obscene the way healthcare is being handled like with 900 million dollars have we increased capacity at all? And I'm not posing that question. Billion. 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 Yeah, sorry. That's that's what I meant. Yeah, 900 billion. I'm not addressing that question to you. I'm addressing that question rhetorically. Um, to to I suppose whoever would be responsible for handling that money. Um <laughs>
1: <laughs> I bet they got pay raises too. <laughs> well, who did? Like honestly, like honestly, him who job? didn't get a- it? In- Kenny gave him
0: Shaw a bonus.
1: Like, who didn't get a bonus or a pay raise if you work for government? Okay, here, another, another. let's go back to the TL2 pandemics because I got another one. So the vast majority of provinces have a sunshine list, right? Alberta actually is a gold standard when it comes to sunshine lists. So a sunshine list is essentially for all the government employees who are making uh, six figures that they are disclosed to the public, right? Taxpayers are the boss. We pay the bills. We should see how many big six-figure bureaucrats uh, we have. Well, the federal government does not have a sunshine list. The vast majority of the provinces do. The feds don't. So we had to file access to information requests to find out how many federal government bureaucrats are making six-figure salaries. Now, get ready for this. In 2021, there was 114,000 federal government employees receiving more than $100,000 in annual salary. That means that there is now 45,000 more federal government employees receiving six figures than there were pre-pandemic 45,000 yeah and look we're talking about the federal government here most of the nurses and doctors are provincial
2: <laughs> right? actually this like, is interesting government this government is interesting i'm federal. actually i'm going to correct you i'm reading a book on this i'm reading a book about our healthcare system doctors are private contractors they are sure, not sure. government employees Sure. Sure.
1: Uh, But but I I meant more like within the hospital healthcare system, which are, which are like Alberta health services, for example, is, is funded from the Alberta government.
0: employees at Alberta health services. That's just Alberta health services. That doesn't include the Alberta teachers association.
1: It's crazy. We really do have a Leviathan here. (laughs) We're going to have
0: to slay it. We're going to have to slay it. I, I say this at the take back Alberta meetings. I say, one of the things we're going to do is we're, Going to burn AHS to the ground.
1: And we're going to do oh, it. Sure. <laughs> well, look, look, I mean, there's another one too, and you guys can pull this up. Uh, but look, I remember re- using the sunshine list, and we found that there were, I'm going to say 900 AHS management bureaucrats. Now, I'm just typing this in Google right now. So just bear with me for a quick second. Yep, there it is. More than 900 AHS management positions on the sunshine list. Right? So that's not 900 employees of AHS. That's 900 Alberta Health Services management employees. Management, management
0: employees. Just just people who shuffle paper. And and all those people shuffled all that paper and all that money got poured into the system and how many more beds did we get? Oh, we lost capacity. So Over these the course are, of a pandemic, the
2: pandemic Alberta lost hospital capacity? Yep. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that.
1: That's that's yeah. crazy.
2: Part of the problem is part of the problem is um because that sounds shocking, um mm-hmm. and it is shocking. Part of the problem is capacity is not just based on physical beds. Capacity is based on the staff that can handle the people in those beds. Right. So, so the they other, fired ten
0: percent of their staff.
2: That's what I'm getting at. They fired unvaccinated staff and reduced hospital capacity because they no longer have the staff to to handle that capacity. Just, just so many, just so many vibrant policies.
0: <laughs> just true thought, well thought, good governance is what we got out of that pandemic. Anyway, okay. Anyway. So,
2: so let's try to let's try to take this home here. Um, let's let's paint ourselves a beautiful fantasy in our heads. Let's say um, we get through this um, this conservative leadership race, and whoever wins that particular race. Um, defeats the Trudeau administration in the next federal election. What is the lowest hanging fruit for putting Mm -hmm. money back in the pockets of Canadians? What should that administration's
1: first monetary moves be? Okay, let me just rephrase that a little bit, because like, we're of the belief, and, and this is the model of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, is that you push the public in the right direction, and it doesn't really matter to an extent which party's in power. Uh, we saw in the 90s, right, that the Trudeau or not the Trudeau, the Cretchen liberals and with Paul Martin as a finance minister did a whole lot of good um, in, in reigning in spending. So let me just reframe that because uh, we think that it could really be any party um, that we just want all parties to adopt this. So best case scenario, all parties want to run on this taxpayer ticket. Um, OK, what do they do? Well, I think you do have to cut taxes, but let me start with the spending first. And there is so much low-hanging fruit on the spending side. It's insane. And what's so frustrating is that it doesn't even seem like they're trying to cut spending, okay? Obviously, the number one thing is reverse the pay raises that these members of parliament gave themselves. Um, you have to look at the top, so you've got to look at the governor general as well. Uh, the governor general... Gets A former governor general can leave office, and then they still get to bill taxpayers $200,000 every single year for the rest of their life. And up to six months after their death, their estate can still uh, bill taxpayers. Um, Let's look at another one. Uh, The governor general can serve for... Any length of time, so you had Julie Payette, who served for a little bit more than three years, and she's still eligible to collect the full pension of uh, more than four million dollars to the age of ninety. So these are like the low-hanging fruit that is just so obvious. Another one, which is not low, but it, or it's low, but it's not small, is corporate welfare. So that's when you have these government bureaucrats and politicians trying to play investment banker with tax dollars, giving taxpayers money to select companies, not lowering taxes, but giving them pork. (laughs) We identified $18 billion worth of corporate welfare announcements since the beginning of 2017. Okay. So that's a few stuff on the spending side. There's way more and I can go on for as long as you want, but that's a few things on the spending side. The second thing is that we have to lower taxes. Well, why not cut all that corporate welfare and use it to cut small business taxes? or general business taxes. But business taxes of some nature, because Canada ranks in the bottom half of the OECD, industrialized countries, on business tax competitiveness. So if you want to attract investment, you have to make it attractive for that investment to set up shop in Canada. Okay? So what else? What other types of taxes? Well, we heard Pauliev actually talk about some, some good types of tax reduction cut income taxes, cut payroll taxes. We've seen that it's very difficult for businesses to attract workers. Well, let's start rewarding work. And you do that by letting people keep more of the money they earn while on the job. So cut payroll taxes, cut income taxes. The next thing, which should be day one, is cut these punishing types of gasoline taxes. Cut the carbon tax. Don't bring in the second carbon tax. Why don't you temporarily remove the excise tax that you pay at the pumps? Okay, so so those are the types of taxes you want to cut. The third aspect is you got to start looking at the uh, the really damaging forms of regulation. Okay, what's really what's really like discouraging people from investing in Alberta, the discriminatory tanker ban, Bill C-48, the no more pipelines law, Bill C-69. So I think those are kind of the three things that a government would have to do. Right. Immediately, you have to come in and you have to cut spending. Look, the government was spending all time highs before the pandemic. So yes, it can cut spending. The second thing is cut those taxes we're talking about. Cut the small business tax. uh, Cut income and payroll taxes. Obviously, scrap the carbon taxes and all those punishing types of taxes. And then third, you have to to remove this punishing regulatory burden that isn't allowing investment to come to Canada and for people to actually start businesses.
0: Ah, man. Franco, you get this. You get this at a level that so many people don't. And I'm so grateful for people like you who are who are fighting this fight. We, we're out of time here, but I've got to get on a podcast of my own to explain democracy to people who are voting in the uh, upcoming uh, provincial leadership race. But thank we're you for on. what you do. I really appreciate it. And uh, I just think that being a good steward of what we're given is so important. And And really that's what you advocate for all the time. So thank you.
1: Well, hey guys! Thanks for letting me come on and speak to your audience, and thanks for letting me ramble on about some wonky economics.
2: <laughs> oh, I loved it! I absolutely
0: loved. It. <laughs> but I, but I am a wonky economic, economist myself. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you very much,
0: Franco. <laughs> Cheers, guys! Thank you for listening to the Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the Cad Story. That's the C A D Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.